And I thank you, Father, that right now you're going to release revelation to us. I thank you, Father, that right now you're going to stir our hearts. I thank you right now, Father, that you're going to break wrong mindsets and you're going to cause us to be aligned in a way with you that we haven't been before, God. Thank you for a release of hunger. Thank you for a release of visions and dreams, even as I speak, God. Thank you, Father, for your presence here. We say, God, we want more of you. We want more of you, God. We desire you today, God. Uh, let us be changed. Let us not just hear a word. Let us be changed tonight, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, so, obviously, I've been praying about what I felt, what the Lord uh, is wanting to share tonight. And really, I feel like it's just a message that has been on my heart. And I don't even know how it's going to come out. But let's just see how it comes out. So... I refer to the book of the Nazarite, um, uh, and I want to I start with that. I guess this last season, or this season I'm in right now, th th there's been certain prayers I've been praying consistently, uh, and it's connected to a word I feel the Lord gave me last year, um, which was about the fact that he's going to start to release divine encounters uh, to us, his people, and then... on. Uh, after that, I, I got the word about uh, uh, 2015 being a year of divine suddenlies. I remember being in the prayer room and, you know, as I was praying and I just started having these words about God was, gonna, God was wanting to release encounters to his people uh, this year. Um, and almost like we're entering a season of preparing ourselves for encounters with God. So I've been thinking a lot about Isaiah 6, which is why I read earlier on uh, during the worship. And uh, I've just been thinking about encountering God because, as I said uh, uh, prior to, um, uh, just after the worship time, I said, the next dimension of revival, I believe, is hidden in the next dimension of prayer, which I believe is hidden in an encounter with God. Uh, the people who have encountered God have changed history. Um, and until... We stand in a place where we have truly met God. We don't have authority to change a nation. I'll say that again. Until you stand in a place where you have met God. I don't mean where you've heard about God. I don't mean where you're depending on experience you had with God five years ago or even last month. I mean where you have met God. Until you stand in the reality of that place, you do not have the authority to change a nation. The authority that comes from the, uh, the, the authority that causes us to change the nation comes from the, the foundation of encounter with God. Elijah in uh, First Kings came before Ahab and said, there will be no rain at my word. And they talked, it, 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 made, a, it made a reference to, uh, uh, before the Lord of whom I stand, there shall be no rain. It's all about the fact that he was standing in the presence of God. And from the presence of God, he came to make a decree. And when he made that decree, a nation was changed. We don't know anything about, it, about Elijah before that decree. I believe is, um, I wasn't planning to start here, but I'll, I'll go there. I think it's First Kings um, 17 or something like that. Yeah, 1 Kings 17. It says, 
as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, Elijah says, 1 Kings 17, 1, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. Look at that. Elijah says, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, Elijah was making a declaration from a place of current encounter with God. See, we can't live in the memory of yesterday's passion. We've got to live in the reality of today's fire. It's not just about the fact that I was on fire for God yesterday. It's not about the fact that I had a nice experience at that meeting I have to live in an ongoing encounter with God now. The reason why Elijah's word could stand and a nation was changed because of his decree was because he was living in reality of encounter with God. Now, if you go to the book of James 5, you see a bit of the backstory to this declaration. Elijah didn't just come out of nowhere. Technically, he did according to the way it appears in scripture because you don't hear about Elijah until 1 Kings 17. Okay, but if you read the book of James, he says Elijah was a man just like us with like passion. And he says he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And then he said it did not rain. So let's just pause there. James 5, Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Right here in 1 Kings 17, what do we see? We see Elijah coming before the king, making a declaration. Before Elijah made a declaration, there was earnest prayer going on behind the scenes. He didn't just make a declaration out of nowhere. (laughs) The declaration came out of the consistency of contending for God to shut the heavens. And we see a picture of that later on when he was crying out for the rain to be released. How he prayed intensely for the rain to be released. I believe that was a picture of also what he prayed like before the heavens were shut. He knew the will of God, and he prayed in line with the will of God. How did I end up here? I don't know. But as I've been thinking about the whole idea of encounter, it's been stirred in my heart that I believe this year God wants to release encounters to us. And the thing about encounters is you can't manufacture an encounter. You can't make, you can't make it happen. You can only position yourself for it. And I've been trying to look through a few things in scripture that I feel like God is calling me. Because when I'm sharing this message, first and foremost, it's a message that's coming to me. Okay, but I believe it's for us. I'm looking through scripture and seeing some of the things I believe God is calling us to begin a walk in. To position ourselves for the encounters he has for us. And when I say encounters, I don't mean just a nice experience. I don't mean the fact that you shake on the floor or the fact that you cry a little tear here and there. I don't mean that. I mean, when you read Isaiah, when he had that encounter with God, his life became defined from that point onwards because of that. It defined everything else in his life from that point. Are you with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't just mean some nice little experience. I mean, God changing you to the point where the person closest to you looks at you and says, what's happened to you? Where all those things that have been going on, that flesh issues, all those things that have been going on for years. You know, I talk about Hebrews uh, where he says, um, lay aside the weight and the sin that's so easily besets us. You know, and the fact that there's a difference between weight and sin. Hebrews 12, I think it is. I might be wrong there. But Hebrews, it says, 
lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. Okay, many of us know, if not all of us, we all know we're not supposed to be living in sin. Jesus said to the woman at the well, go and sin no more. He said it because it's possible. <laughs> okay, go and sin no more. Don't be carried away in the same cycle. Now, go and live in freedom. Okay, so Jesus said that to that woman. Where was I? I lost my train of thought just then. Wait, that's, thank you. <laughs> Wait and sin. So, Every sin is a weight, but not every weight is a sin. Are you with me? So there's some things that are slowing us down in our walk with God, but they're not necessarily sin. And they're things that actually have become entanglements, but they're hindering our progress. So when I talk about an encounter with God, I'm not just talking about being set free from addictions. I'm talking about being set free from even personality traits and things that, have, that seem like they've just been there forever. Are you with me? <laughs> That's like, God, I can't even change myself here. It's an encounter that will change that. <laughs> okay? So I've been in this place of asking God questions and just uh, trying to see, well, Lord, what, how do I align myself for this encounter that I believe you want to release to me this year in a way I've never known before, that I am just changed in a new way. So I want to talk briefly about the Nazarites because it's, it's related to this. Um, in number six, you read about the law of the Nazarites. Now, in the nation of Israel, you have 12, 12 tribes, okay? I want you to track with me. How many tribes? 12 tribes. And you have the tribe of Levi, right? The Levites, the Levites were called to serve God and do nothing else. They were set apart to serving God. Okay? The rest of the nation could have other responsibilities, but the Levites were called to serve God. Now, within the Levite tribe, you have the priesthood. Within the priesthood, you have the high priest. Okay? So... Every priest is a, is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest. Okay? Tracking with me. The responsibilities are different as well. The responsibility of the ordinary Levite is different to that of the priest. Okay? God requires more from the priest in terms of their consecration and their being set apart than it does the ordinary Levite. Okay? And then when you go to the high priest, there's just one person that's the high priest. And they were the ones that had to go into the temple to atone for the sin of a whole nation. The requirement of lifestyle on the high priest was higher than everyone else. Because they were called to affect the spiritual condition of a nation. So everyone else could get away with some things, but they couldn't get away with it. Because there was a strong calling on their life. My God. There's some of you here today... There's some things you will not be able to get away with. There are other people around you that can do it. Even Christians are doing it. And it may not even look like sin, but God will not let you do it. Because others may, but you may not. Because there's a high calling. And when there is a high calling, a, high, uh, uh, a mighty calling demands a mighty separation in lifestyle. When God has a special mission, he puts a special demand on a lifestyle. 
The mission has to be accomplished by a man who lives a lifestyle. Revival, actually, is not just God showing up, as many people think. Revival is not just sovereign. Revival is in partnership with man. And look through history. There was at least one person that lived a certain lifestyle that attracted God. And got, it got to the point where God said, now I'm going to amplify that lifestyle to the world. And we call it revival. Evan Roberts, Charles Finney, John Wesley, George Whitfield. They lived a certain way that attracted heaven such that when John Wesley preached, people would fall out of trees dead. No, not dead. They'll fall out of trees slain in the spirit. <laughs> they didn't die. <laughs> people would fall out of trees. People would, he would preach, the anointing would come so strong and people would just be, people would just pass out. I, I didn't have heard of Maria Woodward Heather. Anyone? One of the revival, a woman, when she preached, it was said that people started, unsafe people coming to the meetings to disrupt the meeting, and God would start giving them revelation of hell. And they would be clinging on to the, uh, to the pew, saying, hell is too good for me. Hell is too good for me. God would be showing them the state of their hearts. Wait, there, some strange things happen in the meetings. People would, uh, uh, would, uh, would freeze. I don't know what they call it now. Like going to a trance. People would come to disrupt the meeting and they'll go into a trance sometimes for days. And I, I don't know if those people went into trance for days, but I know definitely for long hours. I do know though that Maria would have ever sometimes would be preaching and going to a trance for days and remain in the same position like this. Some strange things happened. God found a lifestyle, that's the point I'm making, and he amplified that lifestyle to the world. So there's a requirement of lifestyle on the high priest, okay? So are you tracking with me? There's the Levites, okay? There is the priesthood, and then there's the high priest. Well, what has that got to do with anything? The law of the Nazarites. Now, the point is, every other tribe in Israel could not be like the Levites because they were born into it. It, it was like, they, that's what they did. They, they, it was in their blood. They had no choice. They were born into it. Their fathers and father, fathers, you know, grandfathers and forefathers always did it. So they were there doing it. Well, all the tribes, some people also wanted to give themselves to God in a radical way like the Levites. But they weren't born into it. That's where the law of the Nazarite comes in. And the Lord says, if anyone desires to give themselves like the Levites, but they're not Levites, and they want to set themselves apart to God, they need to take the vow of the Nazarite, number six. You can read it up. And the vow of the Nazarite said, they will not touch, they will not drink wine, which is a picture of pleasure, letting go of the temporal pleasures of this world to experience the eternal pleasures of knowing God. Okay, so that was, that was what the wine was, the picture of that. They were not going to drink wine. Two, that they were going to grow their hair long, which was a sign of how far can I go, God? How abandoned would you let me be? It wasn't how little can I get away with. You know, some Christians are thinking about how little they can do to get into heaven. I'd rather be thinking of how much can I do to see heaven come to earth. It's not about what, how much can I get away with. <laughs> You know, many people live like too, many people live like this, too much of the world in them to enjoy God and too much of God in them to enjoy the world. So they live in a place where they're constantly frustrated because they want to enjoy the world. And God is calling us to the place of that kind of consecration that the Nazarites had. 
Okay, so they didn't drink wine. They grew their hair long, and they were not meant to go near any dead thing. That was the third thing about the Nazarite, which is a picture of compromise and flirting with sin. So why am I saying all that? As I'm thinking about encounters with God, I'm thinking about certain people in the scriptures. One, Samson. Samson was a Nazarite. Samson was called to be a Nazarite. That's why he grew his hair long. And what was manifested through Samson was a prophetic picture of what God wants to release at the end of the age. Extraordinary power. Extraordinary display of power. I believe God is going to unleash upon a generation before Jesus returns. We're going to see something that the world has never seen before, people. And I'm prophesying it because I know it. We're going to see the display of the power of God. I mean, not, 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 not just like the lame walking or legs growing out and people getting raised from the dead. That's great. But we're going to see like extraordinary power displayed in nature. You know, where it talks about the ground opening up, where, you know, it talks about, I don't know, I was reading this recently, where God changed the, the, the shadow, the, the, the sun, stopped the sun. <laughs> where you, we're going to see extraordinary works in nature, and we're going to see the outpouring of the Spirit on a great measure, like the book of Acts, but greater than that. So take the book of Acts and take the Old Testament, the works of God you read about. Combine it, and what's ahead of us is greater than that. Are you with me? So what's ahead of us is going to be extraordinary displays of power. That's what Samson is a picture of. The other Nazarite is Samuel. Samuel was a Nazarite. In the the book of 1 Samuel, you can read about him. Hannah was in a place of agony, crying out to God. Hannah was crying out for a son, but heaven was pregnant with a prophet. And Hannah was crying out to God, but she didn't realize God had placed that situation around her to release the cry that would birth the prophet, that would change the nation. There was a certain cry that needed to come out. That wasn't coming out until God put Hannah in a place of barrenness. So out of Hannah comes extraordinary prophecy. God says of Samuel that none of his words fell to the ground. That's incredible. Every word he spoke, God backed it up. That tells me there are some words he spoke that did not originate from God, that God just backed up because Samuel was Samuel. He says, none of the words he spoke fell to the ground. In fact, I was reading earlier on where he said to the people of of, of Israel, he says, I'm going to cry out to God and he's going to send thunderstorms and rain. And I'm going to do that to prove to you that your asking for a king was wrong. And guess what? He did it and God released it. And the Bible says, the people feared God and Samuel. Why? Because his words did not fall to the ground. So extraordinary power, one, Nazarite, Samson. Extraordinary prophecy, two, Samuel. Extraordinary preaching with power, three, John the Baptist. Do you see what I'm saying here? John the Baptist was a Nazarite. (laughs) Set apart to God and John the Baptist did not do the kind of works that Elijah did, but his preaching shook a nation. See, today we're hearing too many nice preaching. It's not shaking nothing. The devil is not scared. We're just entertaining each other and making each other feel good. We're shaking nothing. When John the Baptist preached, there was a shaking in the atmosphere. God had to place him in a desert place. 
for the voice to be formed that will cause such a shaking in the nation. John the Baptist being in the desert was not an accident. There was a certain voice that needed to be released that the spirit would recognize. And when that voice was released, there was going to be extraordinary waves of repentance. The mark of John the Baptist was the spirit of conviction and repentance. In the last days, we're going to see the combination of these three anointings. Extraordinary power display. Extraordinary prophecy released with accuracy. And extraordinary preaching with power. You know the interesting thing about these three people? (laughs) Samson's mom was barren. Samuel's mom was barren. John the Baptist's mom was barren. My God. Is God trying to say something in this? That in order to release a voice that will cause such a shift of culture and atmosphere, he places people in a barren place. And the barrenness is meant to stir up a cry. Because the prophecy, the power, and the preaching will not be, re- will not be released without the cry coming forth. And we're too comfortable. So God said, okay, I'm going to cause a cry to come out of you. And for that cry to come out, I will place you in a barren place. Everyone else is having it, but you will not have it. Because when you have it, it's going to change a nation. But I'm not just going to give it to you just like that because I want you to intercede for it. So I'm going to make you groan for it. Huh. See, look at, look at Samuel. Samuel, Samuel. We remember the name of Samuel. But Samuel was the son of Hannah. Hannah was, I think, one of the two wives. The other wife had many kids. Do we know their name? She was filled with quantity but no quality. One voice, Samuel, it took such a, see, she she was in bitterness of soul, it said, when she prayed. There was an agony, there was a cry that was in her when she prayed. So when that cry went forth, that was what was needed from heaven's perspective to release the quality of the man that Samuel was into the earth realm. And there's some of you right now, you're in a barren place. You're in a, John the Baptist was in the desert. His parents were barren, his mom was barren, but God also placed him in a desert. And you find that when God, Moses was in a desert, Paul was in a desert, Jesus was in a desert. So you complain about your desert, as opposed to allowing the desert to stir up the cry in you. And this is the, this is the key I'm, I'm feeling God saying to me about the encounter that's ahead of us. Desperation. When you look at all these situations, God placed them in an atmosphere that was going to stir up real desperation. There has to be a capturing of an authentic, holy, faith-filled desperation for God. And sometimes it's only a barren place that will cause you to cry out like that. Because many of us are too comfortable with all the messages, all the sermons, all the songs, all the meetings. Oh, we're just feeling good. We're just feeling good. We're just feeling good. But nothing is changing. 
And God really wants to release an encounter. But the encounter is so precious that he wants you to be tired and, and, and bored and fed up of where you are so much that there's such a, God, I can't take this anymore. And many of you have just settled and go, you know what, God, maybe this is just the way it is. You know, maybe, maybe the anointing and the calling is just for people like Bill Johnson. Oh, maybe it's just for, you know, I don't know. I don't know who Kim Walker. I don't know. I don't know who you listen to. Oh, it's just for the, the great preacher, Raynard Bunker. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, he's called and anointed. But, you know, I'm just called to be me. I'm just called to do this job here. No. You're not allowing that situation around you to stir up the holy desperation that will prepare you for the encounter ahead of you. You're getting comfortable. And God is saying, there is an encounter ahead of you. Get ready. Let the frustration get to you. Let the cry come out of you. Do not settle. Do not think it's okay that you've just sang a song and there's no connection in your heart with God. Do not think it's okay that you're not changing month after month. You're repeating the same things, the same sins, the same addictions, the same distractions, the same frustrations, and nothing is changing. Yeah, you're singing. Yeah, you're praying. Do not allow that to become something that you think you take as okay. Let it drive you to a point of holy desperation. Somebody say desperation. We need a revival of desperation in the church. I'm not saying desperation that's faithless. I'm saying desperation that's full of faith, knowing that he will come. Knowing that there is no way I'm going to, he says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Many of us just seek him, not diligently. Not intensely. Not saying, God, I will not let go. I need to bring, you need to change me, God. I'm tired of me. Are you tired of you? I'm tired of me. <laughs> that time, God, you need to change me. And God wants us to get into that place of desperation. That's one. Two is Isaiah 6. And I read this earlier on. And this is where I'm going to um, um, round up. Isaiah 6. Isaiah has a vision of God. And this is just not like any other vision. This is a big deal. Because <sighs> as far as I'm aware, no one has had a vision of God like this in Scripture before Isaiah. Now, that statement I made, I've not looked it up, but I'm assuming there. Because I know Ezekiel also had a similar kind of vision, but I don't know if Ezekiel was after, well, I don't know if Ezekiel was after Isaiah before, but according to scriptures, it looks like Ezekiel was after, but that's just following the chronological fact that Ezekiel is a book that comes after Isaiah, but I don't know. The point is, Elijah has a significant encounter with God. And in Isaiah 6, verse 1, I read this already, but I want to read it again. It says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I've been meditating on that for a while now, because I felt like, some of you that have been on the prayer meetings, you would have heard me just share this. Actually, I got some of this revelation while we're praying a few weeks ago. Because I was praying. Because I, as I was praying, 
I said to you, these all-night prayer meetings, the, the focus is not so much intercession because we spend time in intercession as the Lord leads us, but it's more like personal just devotion of just going after him, just, just wanting to go further and deeper. So we're in one of these times, and I just found myself reading Isaiah 6, and um, I'm reading this thinking Isaiah, as, Isaiah is having an encounter here. He's defining his life with this. This is a turning point in his life. And the way he identifies the time God changed him was this. In the year King Uzziah died. So I'm thinking, who is King Uzziah? There's something about King Uzziah that was hindering Isaiah's vision of God. Look at this. It says, in the year... King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord. You have a king and you have a Lord. One king has to die for the Lord to really be revealed. Something has to die. God loved the smell of burning flesh. You know who Uzziah was? Uzziah was a good king. Actually, Uzziah started out good but ended bad. And that was what happened to his father and his father's father. It was like a generational thing. They started good and ended up bad. They started serving God and ended up serving idols. I mean, as far as I know, Uzziah didn't end up serving idols, but he ended up being lifted up in pride. He went into the temple and did what he wasn't supposed to do. And the Lord judged him and he got leprosy. And leprosy right there broke out on him. And he had to leave the temple until the day he died. He was staying in a separate place. Even though he was the king, he lived just in isolation because of his leprosy. And I'm praying and I'm, and I'm thinking about this. And I felt the Lord say to me, you know, leprosy is a disease of the flesh. King Uzziah dying was a picture of judgment on the flesh being manifested. In the year that the judgment of the flesh is being manifested, in that year, the vision of the Holy One is going to be revealed. So I'm thinking, God, what is hindering me from the vision of the Holy One? The flesh. The flesh has to die. That's what King Uzziah represents. The things of the flesh that are not even sin, they need to die. And God is showing me Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why is it a living sacrifice? Sacrifice is dead. You don't, when you sacrifice something, it's dead. It can't be living. It, it can't be a living sacrifice. It's kind of like an oxymoron. Because it's, it's dead. A sacrifice is dead. Why is it living? Because after you kill it, it resurrects itself again. And you need to keep killing it. What did Paul say? I die to the flesh daily. But there's something significant about this death to the flesh that Uzziah represents. Because this was not one of those ones. This was like a key one. This, this, was, this was a big one. This was something that was in the position of lordship. This was something that was in the position of authority. What manifestations of things of the flesh are currently controlling your life. What are those fleshly things? Now, when I say this, sin is always a part of that. But I'm not just talking about sin. What, is the, what are those fleshly attitudes? 
impatience, jealousy, envy, strife, ambition, selfish ambition. What are those things that are very subtle, but you know is a stronghold in you? And it's a work of the flesh. Are you ready for that to die? Do you want that to die? And I find myself praying this prayer. God, judge the flesh in me. God judged Uzziah. And that's what led to his death. I'm saying, God, judge the flesh in me so that the king Uzziah, in quote, in me, dies so that I can really, really see the Lord. Because I'm not seeing the Lord like I should right now. I know it. But I know there's an encounter ahead of me. And that's why I need to be praying these prayers now. That the flesh dies, and I'm also praying from a place of desperation. Those are two things. Dying of the flesh and a holy, faith-filled desperation for an encounter with God that will change you forever. That's where I'm at right now. Because I know in my heart, God is saying to us, as we begin to align ourselves with this kind of thinking, and begin to not just hear it, but pray it. See, I'm, I'm saying these things not to preach a message. See, I, I don't really do sermons. <laughs> I do messages. Because I'm telling you what is on my heart right now, what God's speaking to me. And I feel like that's for us as well, everyone here. Otherwise, it won't be on my heart. Okay? So I'm not just trying to find a nice message to preach. I'm telling you, I feel there are things ahead of us. We're crying out for revival, but God is looking at us saying, you don't know what you're praying for because you're not even ready. You, look at you. <laughs> look at you. You're not, you're not ready. You're joking. What revival are you crying out for? Look at your life. Look at how you're treating your, your husband. Look at how you're treating your wife. Look at how you're treating your children. Look at how you carry yourself in the home. I say to people, if your Christianity is not working at home, don't bother exporting it. You're wasting. Because it starts in the house. It starts in my home. If it's not working with me and my wife, and I, I'm, just messing, I'm just kidding myself. Because I can deceive you, see? You can deceive me, but you cannot deceive the spirit realm. The angels are watching and the demons are watching. So when you stand and say, God sent revival, they're looking at you saying, the same person, you're very comfortable with that lifestyle, how you treated that person, how you said that, how you are jealous, how you envy, how you're holding malice there, and yet you, you, you're, you're joking. And God wants to release revival, but we're not ready. I'm not ready. So the prayer is now, God, make me ready. Whatever it takes for you to do what you need to do in me so that you can do what you want to do through me, do it, Lord. Those are dangerous prayers to pray because you find that things will begin to shake around you. And then don't start saying, oh, God, why me? You have to really desire what you're praying for. Don't just pray automatic prayers that you've heard all the time. What's that song we sing? You know, I want more of you, God. We sing it, we sing it, we sing it, but we don't really want more of him. We, we don't. Do you know we sing so many things that's a lie? We sing lies in the church. And the evidence of the fact that we're singing lies is the lifestyle that we live after we've sang the song. I give you my soul. I, give, I live for you alone. Really? I live for you alone. You're living for God alone? You're more passionate about Downtown Abbey <laughs> coming on the TV than you are making time to pray. I live for you alone. 
After this prayer meeting, the next thing you're thinking about is you want to watch the next movie that you just saw coming out. I live for, is that real passion for God? Do you understand that God is not wanting just a bit of passion? He wants to consume you. And the people who change the world for good are people who consume the passion for God. It's always been that way. It's not people who give him a tiny bit of their hearts. Oh, I went to church and I went to a prayer meeting. I went to a worship event. I went to a massive, oh, Jesus culture. I went to oh, Bethel. Oh, I've got the latest albums. Oh, I've got all the, you've got all the latest songs, the latest albums, the latest preachers, and you're not changed because your passions are at different places, not God. Yes, you like all the stuff. You like all the songs, but your lifestyle is not manifesting the reality of the things you say with your mouth. If you're really, really hungry for God, let your lifestyle say it. You know why John was able to change the world? Because before God gave him a voice to speak to the world, his life was the message. He lived it for years. He lived it, lived it, lived in the desert. And then finally God said, now I'll give you a voice to speak it. So when he spoke what he was living, guess what? The nation shook. Many of us are not living it. We're just talking it and singing it and nothing is changing in here. That's why we need to make a decision. It's a decision. It's not, you don't change yourself. God changes you. But you need to get frustrated with where you're at. You need to get dissatisfied. You need to be like, God, I am not having this. I don't want to just read about revival happening in Africa or somewhere or Brazil. God, I want to live this. I want to see, because God, you said you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Whatever it takes, whatever it looks like, I want to seek you diligently. Even if no one knows my name. And you see, the other side of that, I, I'm not seeking God so that I will be anointed to be the next greatest preacher. Because that's the other side of it. You, might, you could be seeking God with a hidden agenda of you becoming the next greatest, biggest. Way. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I'm talking about, God, I want to see you and be like this, undone. You see, when you're undone, <laughs> I don't... I've not really experienced that reality, but I remember talking to someone recently who told me about a significant encounter they had for God. And they said the only way they could describe it is they were undone for hours. It was like they were just overpowered by God. And when you're undone, you know you're undone. See, before this, Isaiah was preaching war to everyone. War is this, war is that, war is. And when he saw God, he says, war is me. <laughs> because he didn't really see himself correctly. Until he saw God. And you think you're okay. See, when God shows you where you really are, you're going to go, woe is me. Who, who am I, God? <laughs> Apart from your grace, I'm nothing. And I'm not preaching here something that you have to earn something with God. Because some people think we're trying to say, you know, earn this thing with God. No, no, no. You position yourself by seeking him. You don't perform for acceptance you perform from acceptance he already accepts me if i pray more today or if i if i don't pray tomorrow it doesn't mean god doesn't love me tomorrow my the, 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 when i spend time with god is not for his sake really yes i do spend time for his sake in terms of ministering to him but actually it affects me god's love for you is constant whether you're in sin God loves, God loves the girl who committed the abortion, the guy who raped her, who paid for the abortion, and the baby who died. All the same. All the same. But our experience of his love varies. And that's part of the encounter. 
And it's dependent on how we position ourselves to experience him. And I use this illustration as I round up right now. God is like 10 billion volts of power and you are like one volt. You can't really take much of him. That's why you expand yourself in the word. You expand yourself in prayer. You expand yourself in his presence. And then you can experience more of him. For he's always that awesome and he's always that big and his love never changes. But you have got to expand. You've got to, you've got to be able to handle more. That's what this is about. We're not trying to earn something. We're positioning ourselves to walk in a reality that has already been made available to us. Ephesians 1, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But we're not walking in the reality of it. That is why we fast. That is why we pray. To deaden and quieten the flesh. To begin to know, not just head knowledge, experience the power that's available. And when we know that, others are changed. I'm going to end with this last point. Jesus... He's walking, I think he's in Matthew or somewhere. Jesus walking in a crowd. A lady with the issue of blood comes and touches him and gets healed. Okay. And uh, he says to his disciples, you know, who touched me? And they're saying to him, you know, there's loads of people around you right now. Why are you talking about this, you know, who touched you? You know, but the point is the lady touched him and he felt power go through him. Her demand on him when she touched him, caused the power to leave him and come to her. Other people were around Jesus, but no one was placing a demand. Her touch had purpose. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> See, many people are singing songs. Holy, holy. But when you sing with purpose, ha, you touch something. Her touch had purpose in it. Let your singing have purpose in it because you're, you know who you're singing to. And when you sing that way, you draw things to you in the heavenlies because you're not just, anyway, I wasn't even going to go there. The point is, she touched Jesus and power left him and came to her. How is it that the power that was within Jesus could flow easily through him and hit this woman? I believe it's because Partly anyway, the veil of his flesh was thin. The veil of his flesh was thin and God could get through him. Can God get through you like that? Or is your flesh thick in the way? The Holy Spirit is in you for a reason, to get out. And many times we're just holding him in by fleshly decisions and desires. And the more we learn to die to the flesh, I believe the more the Holy Spirit can flow out of us without hindrance. Do you understand with me? Can we have the band up, please?